Yeah, we are glad that you all made it. Uh, some had some very, very intense experiences last night driving through the snow, like Josh, who came from the east, and the tenants who came from the west, taking hours longer on very, very treacherous roads. So we're glad that God has protected you in this journey. We're starting a new three-part series today called Say What? And uh, when I use somebody else's idea, I have to give credit. So I was planning this series, but I didn't quite have a title for it. And then when we were down visiting our son in Florida, in Claremont, there's a church called Real Life, and we went there, and their pastors are doing a series called Say What? So I thought, perfect, let me borrow that, and I'm set. So that's what this is called, and I'll explain it a little bit later. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for just telling the truth to us. Even though you knew it would absolutely create all kinds of reactions and, and questions and doubts and f- just uh, really, really, in many ways, upsetting our status quo. Yet you, you spoke those words to us to show us what needs to happen to realign our lives with your will. And Lord, may this also be evident as we look into your word for this series. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John begins with those great words that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, even if you have a PhD, you can't make sense of that. That transcends any kind of uh, human understanding. But then John explained what he meant in verse 14 when he said, And the Word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was the Word, which means Jesus was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's what people loved about him. It was his words. Mark chapter 12, verse 37 says, A large crowd listened to him with delight. In John 7, 46, even soldiers refused to obey their orders and arrest him because no one ever spoke like this man. People loved listening to the words of Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 2 says, So many gathered that there was no room left, and he preached the word to them. You see, it was his words that the people loved. And it was his words that they hated. Jesus was not executed because of what he did. He was crucified because of what he said. He made statements that were shocking, subversive, scandalous, and always sharper than a Roman sword. The words of Jesus were so controversial They had no other choice. They had to kill him. And afterwards, the enemies of the New Testament church were absolutely horrified 
when they saw what was happening throughout the Roman Empire because of people like Paul who were spreading the word, the gospel, the good news. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says <clears throat> that these, they were, the city officials were shouting, these men have been ca- who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. In the <clears throat> English Standard Version, they used actually the phrase, these men who have turned the world upside down are now coming here. We use that, a phrase, that phrase a lot in, when we're involved with Campus Crusade with Gisla and Edie and myself. Turning the world upside down. That's the impact that the words of Jesus and those who spread that word had in that society. The words of Jesus were so revolutionary that people were getting motion sickness because his message was turning the world upside down. I mean, just imagine. The Word becomes flesh. God comes to earth. Jesus enters Israel and looks at their society. You know, he could barely believe it. No, 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 you're you're doing it all wrong. Legalism, demon possession, slavery, the Roman Empire. What's all this stuff? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Are you serious? And so when Jesus began to teach them about his ways, which were higher than theirs, as the heavens are higher than the earth, it was was mind-boggling. It was just too radical. They couldn't handle it. No wonder they had to kill him. Well, just imagine Jesus coming into our world. And seeing our culture, what would he say to us? Is this the best you could come up with? Evolution? Are you kidding me? The Big Bang? Really? Is this the best you can do? Capitalism? Materialism? You've got it all wrong. Racial prejudice, pollution, political correctness. Are you serious? If his teachings were ever applied to our society, it would turn everything into a huge upheaval. If Jesus came into our culture, he wouldn't have lasted three years. The words of Jesus were so revolutionary that people were getting motion sickness because his message was turning the world upside down. Which means that if you want to follow Jesus, you better make sure you have some gravel. This three-part series is going to examine some of the shocking statements that Jesus made. Statements that still leave us asking, what? Or in the vernacular of pop culture, Say what? For example, Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Say what? Jesus had just been approached by a rich man who wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. 
And our Lord discerned that his wealth was the most important thing in his world. But he was also very interested in salvation. So having achieved material success, that was his next project. How do I, how do I get to heaven? So Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. Say, what? Are you serious? Talk about sticker shock. I can't do that. That would turn my world upside down. Give that man some gravel. It was out of the question. People don't mind getting salvation. Eternal life is okay as long as it doesn't cost too much. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This was the most outrageous thing he had ever heard. But it was absolutely true. You can't, you can't get to heaven if you love money more than God. It's a conflict of interests. We have to decide to put God first, even if it turns our life around. So, what happens if you, if you do that? Well, that was Peter's question. Peter said, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus replied and said, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The only time we ever see anything like that is in a revolution. In Russia, the Tsar was on first. He had the kingdom and the power and the authority. Until the revolution came, and then he lost everything. He went from the penthouse to the slaughterhouse as he and his family were assassinated. It happened again in Russia in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. And the dictators who had terrorized Eastern Europe were overthrown and arrested. The first all of a sudden were last. And the last shall be first. You know, currently in many countries like China and Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Sudan, North Korea, Christians are despised and rejected. They are outcasts. They're considered expendable. It's just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he said, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But he chose the lowly, the despised, the things that are not, so that no one may boast before him. God chose the least, the lowly, and the last. And that's kind of what's been happening to us here in Canada. You know, our, our status in this culture has steadily decreased, and we're falling fast. The highest ranking, those who are first in our culture, the government and judicial officials have denounced the followers of Jesus as un-Canadian. They've declared that 
our beliefs are against Canadian values. So our status has declined substantially. We're the last people they want to listen to. In many sectors, we're the last ones offered prestigious jobs or promotions or perks. Nobody wants to be last, but that's a good sign. That has us well positioned. We are exactly where we should be because there's a revolution coming. And as the world turns and as the master returns, the last are going to be first. In Matthew 23, verses 11, 12, there's a second example of how Jesus shocked people with what he said. He said, the greatest among you, verse 11 and 12, the greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Say, what? Pass the gravel. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, the way, you mean the way up is down and the way down is up? How, how, does, how does that make sense? Now, Jesus here was talking about the religious leaders who were rather impressed with themselves and they thought everyone else should be also. They loved getting attention, being in the spotlight. They loved sitting in the places of honor at the banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They loved to be greeted in the marketplace and have men call them rabbi and teacher. They loved to be noticed so that when they give to the needy, they would announce it with trumpets. They loved to be recognized so they would pray standing on the street corners to be seen by men. They loved to be honored. So they displayed their piety with somber expressions to make it obvious that they were fasting. So how do you like me now? Well, it kind of sounds like fun. I mean, we all want to be noticed. We long to get some recognition. It's only human. Do you ever feel unappreciated, underutilized, you know, I've asked myself, why does that Rick Steve have that European gig and not me? I could use something like that. Why does Max Locato get to write those bestsellers and not me? I'm jealous. Oops, did I say that? True story. We all want to be somebody. You know, we look for the thermals that could rise us up to higher visibility, to greater opportunities, our ambitions and aspirations are upwardly mobile. But when we follow Jesus, we find ourselves moving in the opposite direction. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, those Pharisees, they had a sweet gig. They had a monopoly on public admiration until Jesus showed up and exposed their hypocrisy. Jesus made it clear that their religion wasn't about God, it was about their career, their reputation. They hadn't exalted the Lord, they had exalted themselves. Their motto was, I must increase. And so Jesus came and he turned their world upside down. In fact, 2,000 years later, the word Pharisee is not a compliment. It's an insult. They used to be first, now they're last. 
They exalted themselves. And so Jesus humbled them. You know, every time we are passed over, every time we are surpassed, every time we are neglected or overlooked, every time we are not acknowledged or given credit, it's either an opportunity to feel sorry for ourselves or to humble ourselves. Now, if we feel sorry for ourselves, we're disqualified from any further compensation. But if we humble ourselves and say, I must decrease, then we are exactly where God wants us to be. We are well positioned because that revolution is coming in which the humble will be exalted. And the humble are going to experience a lot more from God than anyone else. A third example is Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26 the verses that were read earlier. And I want to focus on verse 25 where it says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will find it. Say what? How do we, how do we understand? How do, we, how do you understand that? Like that doesn't make any sense. You know, our culture encourages us to find ourselves, to fulfill ourselves, to promote ourselves. And here's Jesus pointing us in the opposite direction. He says that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Deny yourself. Now that is an interesting idea. That is fascinating. But how is that ever going to get any traction in this kind of society? It's just too radical. You know, I've had my share of hecklers and haters over the years. I've even made some enemies. But let me tell you about the one person I've had the most trouble with, more than anyone else. It's myself. And you know why? Well, let me tell you about myself. Myself is conceited and proud. Myself is a whiner, a complainer. A cynic. Myself is a sore loser, easily angered. Myself gets discouraged and gives up hope. Do you know anyone like that? Myself is very high maintenance. It's really hard to keep myself happy. Almost impossible to please myself because, well, the expectations are just too high. It is exhausting trying to maintain myself. It's killing me. So when Jesus says that I should deny myself, that sounds very interesting. It's a brilliant idea. Why didn't I think of that? It's time to put myself out of business. This world doesn't need more of myself. Are you kidding? I'm not doing anyone any good. This world would be better off without myself. So here's the deal. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. That puts a different spin on things. So much so that now the penguins in Antarctica can see Polaris and the polar bears in Inuvik can see the Southern Cross. This is revolutionary. 
Because we, in this culture, want to save ourselves. That's our basic instinct, self-preservation. Evolutionists say this is the fundamental biological law of existence. It's in our DNA. And that's why this past week, probably 70, 80, maybe 90% of what we did was for ourselves. We wanted to enrich our lives and empower ourselves and entertain ourselves and edify ourselves and extend our life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. You know, there's uh, two main ways we try to save ourselves. One is by achieving significance. And the other is by achieving safety. Let me just explain those a little bit. We try to save ourselves by achieving significance and success, to gain as much of the world as possible. Now, to gain significance in this world, we have to be in control. If you want to be significant, you better be in control. And that means I'll have to push you aside for my sake. I'll have to deceive you if necessary so that I can achieve my ends. And I will use guilt. I will use intimidation. I will use shame. I will use criticism or incentives or flattery, anything to manipulate you into a position where I am in control. Self-preservation, natural selection, survival of the fittest, survival of the significant. That's what's happening in our world. Those who want to save their lives want to do it through significance. The problem is we've got it all wrong because if you take that approach. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. For one thing, there's way too much collateral damage. Too many people get hurt when this happens. When we want to save ourselves and be in control, it doesn't really work. In fact, it eventually destroys us. Just look at the dictators who have to live in a fortress, surrounded by armed guards, by high-tech surveillance. That's no life. They're dominated by paranoia and fear, wondering if there's a traitor in the ranks. They can't even go outside because there could be a sniper in the hills. They're not in control. And that's what happens if you're a control freak. You eventually become paranoid. Saving your life is impossible. It can't be done. It's a waste of time. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you want to find a life worth living, an abundant life, life at its best, you got to pick up some gravel and you invert your instincts and you stop doing what comes naturally, the stuff that Darwin talked about, and you start doing what comes supernaturally, the stuff that Jesus talked about, and you give up control. Not just to anyone. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the word filled actually means be controlled by the Spirit. 
Instead of controlling our lives, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives. And then we live on the basis of that. If we are driven people wanting to achieve significance, we, have to only do, we can only do that through control because how else can you be successful? But if we realize that that's not working, then we need to repent, which means to turn around, make a U-turn. And that U-turn can be so disorienting, we might even get an emotional whiplash. It's like those car chases in the Bond movies or Jason Bourne, tires screeching, hubcaps flying. Repent, U-turn, go the other way. When we change direction and give the Holy Spirit control, we begin to decrease so that he may increase. We begin to deny ourselves and humble ourselves. And so we no longer use people. You know, I, I know people who will never talk to somebody unless they can somehow use that person to help them reach their goals. Everyone else to them is absolutely relevant. But when you let the Holy Spirit control you, you begin to talk to people who can do you absolutely no good. You talk to them because you care about them and what's happening to them and how you can help them. You don't try to manipulate people. Instead, you help them succeed. You encourage them. You pray for them. You forgive for them. Forgive them. All the things that the Bible talks about. Because we did not come to be served. We came to serve and to sacrifice for the sake of others. And that's exactly what the rich young man couldn't do. That's what the Pharisees refused to do, and that's why they didn't follow Jesus, because this was just too radical. But I'll tell you, there is no other way. You have to decide, either you're going to try to save your life, or for the sake of Jesus, you're willing to lose it. So driven people want to achieve significance, and they do that by controlling others. But on the other hand... Defensive people want to achieve safety. And they do that by becoming very cautious. Now this is a priority for me. This is a big thing for me. While others are trying to be successful and stay in control, some of us are just trying to survive. So we become very cautious. Those are the two most popular ways of saving our life. And Jesus rejected both of those. For driven people who want to be significant, the challenge is to repent. For defensive people who want to be safe, the challenge is to take risks. And I hate to do that. It reminds me of something that happened to me in 2009. I once pastored a church in deepest, darkest oiler country for about 21 years. And near the end of that time, one of our members challenged me and another guy to accompany him on a trip to Africa to find a village that we could sponsor. Well, that idea was preposterous for someone like me. It was a non-starter because myself needs to play it safe. And I have very good reasons why I have to do that because after about 40 years of pastoral ministry, I have some post-traumatic stress symptoms like profound fatigue, anxiety attacks, and very severe nightmares. I have lots of trouble sleeping. So 
I have to be very careful what I do in any given day because if I don't get enough sleep, that sets off a, an, a domino effect which eventually turns me to, into the incredible sulk. So I have to be careful. I have to play it safe. Otherwise, I could lose my life. And I don't want to do that. I want to save my life. So a missions trip huh, to Africa, it's a crazy idea. I went to, one, to the Amazon in 1986. That's when I was in the prime of my life. I was healthy as a horse. And I also got inoculations for every disease in the Western Hemisphere. So for 10 years, I was an immortal. I couldn't die. So filled with self-confidence and immortality, I set off to do some damage and plunder the strong man's house. And I went to Manaus, Brazil, which was a terrible trip. For 24 hours, I didn't sleep. And afterwards, I got sick. I, it was just one thing after another. I spent the whole time enduring the effects of uh, some blood infection when my head collided with a rusty nail. I got an amoeba infection in my ear. I got sunstroke, and they were treating me for pneumonia. A terrible experience. Worst two weeks of my life. Now, I'm sure God did a lot of things during that time, but I didn't enjoy it. I was kind of half-conscious. It was all a blur. So I learned my lesson, no more missions trips. Don't take the risk. Going to Africa, are you kidding? You couldn't get a herd of wild elephants to drag me to Africa. You know, I had a dozen reasons against the idea. But only one for it in favor. Because as a Christian, I claim to obey the Bible, which says that whoever loses his life for me will find it. Maybe there was something that I could only find in Africa that I would find nowhere else. So I took a risk. And against my better judgment, I went to Africa. And this time, the most amazing thing happened. We didn't get sick. So we had time to visit a number of villages and ghettos in Kenya and Uganda. And at the end of that trip, we had to pick one. And they asked me, what, what village should we pick? And I said, I know, Merari, Uganda. That's the one. We spent about a half a day there, mostly with the children. Wonderful, wonderful children who got very sick because they were drinking contaminated water. It would be so nice if we could do something about that. But I didn't know if our church was up to that kind of a challenge. And so we returned from the trip and... I basically retired from ministry and left the church thinking that Marari was one of those good ideas that was just kind of fade away. After all, you know, some of our lay people uh, really, really didn't like the idea. But others got very serious about this. So there was a team every single year that went to Africa. And the result is three wells with fresh water, a school with over 600 children, a medical clinic, and a church building. None of that was there before. The people of Marari did most of the work, but we provided the funding and the materials, and we kind of got things going. And I wasn't involved in any of it. I just had that initial trip. But if I hadn't taken the risk, it probably never would have happened, not 
in Merari because there are so many villages that need intervention in Merari might have just been overlooked. I was only there for half a day, but I believe more good came out of that visit for this world and for the kingdom of God than all of the other things that I have done in my life for over four decades. That was the most significant thing I have ever seen God do in my life. And I did find something in Merari. I found my life. I found out who I was. I found out why God had created me and called me. That is what I am most happy about. That half day fulfilled my life. And it never would have happened if I decided to save my life and play it safe and not take a risk. And so that's what helped me understand that whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's the lost and found department in the Bible where the most amazing things happen. So in summary, some of you may be driven by the need to be significant, which means you have to be in control, but maybe it's wearing you out. And you're trying to make something out of your life, but you're losing it. You need to repent. Turn around and go in the opposite direction. Humble yourself. Deny yourself. Give up control to the Holy Spirit. It will turn your world upside down. And you will start serving and sacrificing for others. Some of you are living defensively because you need to be safe. You want to survive. So you become so very cautious. But you're wasting away. When all you do is try to survive, life loses meaning and becomes mediocre. By trying to save your life, you're actually losing it. You are the ones who need to take some risks. Start practicing by every day doing one thing for God that you don't want to do, that you don't feel like doing. And sometime this year, go on an adventure and do some damage to the devil's evil empire. And you're going to become part of a revolution that is turning the world upside down. Let's pray.